Mark chapter 14. Everyone adores something. Everyone's devoted to something. By many of your jerseys and shirts and whatnot, today you can see where many people's devotions lie, and our devotions will be revealed tonight at kickoff at 6.30 for sure. Um, But human devotion or adoration of a thing or a person, it can be a really funny thing. And, And this is the stuff that makes for songs and movies and books, especially it's, it's love and devotion to other people. But our devotion to people, our adoration of people, uh, has some quirks to it. It's not as altruistic as the poets and the songwriters would lead us to believe. Uh, take, for example, a guy from Nevada named Brent Wilbur. Uh, a few years ago, we read this story about a guy from Reno, Nevada, And in the city of Reno is a university, the University of Nevada at Reno. And on a hillside in the city is a large letter N for the University of Nevada, uh, and it's laid out in white rocks. And you can see it on this one side of the city. It's kind of elevated up so everyone can see. Everyone knows it's there. It's not a big whoop. It's one of those details in the city that after a while you just forget about. You don't see it anymore. It becomes invisible. Well, Brent was in love with a woman named Tina. And Brent made bad choices and threw away his Tina. And then realized the error of his ways and decided to woo her back. And he came up with a master plan for showing his love and devotion to Tina. He would use the university's white rock letter N and spell her name in the hillside with other white rocks. So he loaded his pickup truck with a bunch of white rocks he bought at the local home goods store, and he drove up to this hillside, and he started to carry bags of white rocks down to the hillside to spell Tina. He was going to use the N that was already there. And you can see maybe a little faint outline next to the N of the letter A. And here's what Brent realized. Rocks are heavy. And that, that end that looks kind of small from the road is not that big. Or it's, it's a lot bigger than it appears uh, whenever you're standing right next to it. And so after a night of heavy labor, Brent realized, well, I love Tina, but just not this much. And he walked away from his <laughs> measly efforts to win her back. Human adoration is such a funny, quirky thing. And the passage we're going to study this morning diagnoses us with a problem. The problem that Mark 14 gives us today is that we don't practice the adoration of Jesus. We don't cherish Him. We don't love Him as we ought to. The term adoration is not one that gets used very much, especially in Baptist circles. Adoration as a concept exists more in the Catholic Church. Specifically, there's a practice called Eucharistic adoration where one would sit in thoughtful meditation, prayerful meditation uh, before the elements of the Eucharist once they've been consecrated and housed in what's called the temple uh, in the Catholic Church. Uh, Eucharistic adoration, sitting before the elements, adoring Christ in prayer that way. Um, That's a concept, a thing. In Protestant life, we don't have that concept so much. We don't talk about adoration as much. So when I talk about it today, I'm not looking at importing the Catholic practice into our church. What we're talking about with adoration is cherishing Jesus, devotion to Jesus, worship and praise. Above all, it would be love towards Jesus. We have a love problem in our hearts. 
Um, the term adoration uh, can be defined in a few different ways as a practice. Uh, Jim Simbala, pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle, he defined it this way. He said, adoration is when my heart goes to Jesus' heart in love. That's a little flowery for me. Uh, so here's the Busby standard definition, uh, if you will. The, the adoration of Jesus is this. It is filling our minds with the person of Jesus so that our hearts are filled with love for Jesus. So it's thinking on the person in the work of Jesus, and there's an affectional response. Uh, my love goes to Jesus. My heart is filled with love, devotion, adoration of Him. We do so little of this. I find that so many of us approach Jesus in a purely utilitarian fashion. We need Jesus to be a fixer and a doer, and so our prayers are filled with things we need Jesus to do. Jesus, I need this, and I need you to do this, and I do this, I say this in Jesus' name, amen. We come with our shopping cart to Jesus, and we forget so often the value and the need we have of just sitting with Him and adoring Him, loving Him, thinking on who He is and what He's done in our place. So my goal in preaching Mark 14 this morning uh, is to influence you to practice adoring and cherishing Jesus. What would that look like in your life? It can look like any number of things. We have adored and cherished Him as we have worshipped together this morning. You can adore Him, show your love towards Him in acts of service. You can do that in personal, private worship. I'm going to encourage you at the end of our time together this morning to treat it almost like a spiritual discipline, to, to carve time into your life to set your mind on Christ and lift your heart to Christ. I think if we study Mark 14, 1 through 11 properly, we walk out of here ready to devote ourselves in a greater fashion to Jesus because of who he is and what he's done for us. So when we step into chapter 14, we're in the final grand narrative of the gospel of Mark. Now, prior to this, the first 13 chapters of Mark are little snippets. We, we go from scene to scene to scene. But chapter 14 and on is one long narrative that, that goes for, through different days, but it's one story being told throughout. Um, we're only just a couple of days away from Christ's death on the cross, and on this night, chapter 14... Jesus goes to dinner at the home of some of his friends in a town near Jerusalem called Bethany. Bethany is a tiny little rural suburb, if you will, of the capital city of Jerusalem. Here Jesus has this meal, an incredible experience. Our teacher today is a nameless, voiceless woman. I'm excited for us to learn from her. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. 
And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I want to show you this morning from Mark chapter 14, five reasons why we should adore Jesus Christ. Uh, This story is a story that's familiar across the four Gospels. It shows up in Matthew and in John. Luke tells a similar story, but it is a different story, a different person involved, different people, uh, a different house, different people at the dinner, uh, different action that takes place in the story. It's an anointing story, but it's a different anointing story from the one that Mark and Matthew and John seem to tell uh, and have in common. Uh, Mark starts by giving us the date. He tells us that uh, it's just a couple of days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And now, the Passover, in case you're not familiar with it, this is mega holiday season in and around Jerusalem. The Passover celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, uh, recorded in the book of Exodus. The Feast of Unleavened Bread comes from that incredible historical event. It commemorates the haste with which Israel left for Egypt. They didn't have time for even their bread to rise. They had to take their flat bread and just go and get out of Egypt while they could. Uh, So these two holidays were merged together and they were treated as one seven-day festival called the Feast of Passover. On this particular night, Jesus is eating in the home of a man named Simon the leper. We only know one thing for sure about Simon the leper. He's not a leper at the point of this meal. (laughs) He's a former leper. How incredible would it be? I, I wonder if there's not a bit of humor here in the fact that he's identified as Simon the leper. How incredible would it be if throughout your life you introduced yourself that way? Hey, how you doing? My name's Simon the leper. And then people would go, ah! And you'd say, ah, no, 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 no. Let me tell you a story. I used to be a leper. And then Jesus healed me. I'm good to go right now. But I go by Simon the leper so I can tell the story of what Jesus did for me. It's absolutely incredible. That's the one thing we know for sure about Simon the leper's identity. Now, during the meal, something unusual happens. Jesus is eating, and uh, the people there are eating, and a woman comes into the room, and she breaks open an alabaster jar of oil, perfume, and she pours it on Jesus. Um, We're told it's an alabaster jar. This is an example. This is not the jar. This is an example of what it might have looked like. These were common vessels. They're small. Uh, They are fantastic for sealing in oils and aromatics. We're told that the perfume inside the jar that the woman brought in is pure nard. It's an aromatic oil extracted from a root that's native to India. In order to retain the fragrance of that, you you put it in the alabaster jar and you seal it tight. This is like, uh, you know, first century Tupperware. It it does not let the, the, the aroma out. It holds it in and keeps it fresh. 
And in order to release the aroma, you had to break the neck of the jar. You don't just unscrew the cap, pour a little, and put it. It's a one-time application only. And this would have held enough for just one application. Uh, the disciples tell us in the story that this was extremely valuable. This was worth as much as one year's wages, a whole year's salary in a tiny alabaster jar. And so it says to us that this is likely an heirloom. It's not something she just you know, went down to TJ Maxx and picked up on discount. It's something that was passed down to her generation to generation, probably mother to daughter. It was, a, it was precious beyond its monetary value. It also held personal value as well. She comes in, she breaks open the jar, she pours it on Jesus. The anointing was a common custom at feasts. This was not uncommon at all. Uh, think of Psalm 23. You set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. It was common hygienic practice. You're going to fix yourself up. A little oil in the hair, slick it back, and you're good to go. But in this context, the application of this oil is more than just hygienic. This woman's action expresses pure devotion to Jesus Christ. This is an act of worship, an act of adoration, an act in which she cherishes him supremely. So what is the passage asking us to do as readers? In the spotlight of all the failures, religious leaders plotting against Jesus, Judas betraying Jesus, disciples who misunderstand the moment, in light of all of those failures, a spotlight is put on this woman who in Mark's account is nameless. and She shows us the value of loving Jesus. Let me show you five reasons why you and I should adore Jesus, love him supremely. If you're taking notes, first of all, your first reason to adore Jesus is God is sovereign in our chaos. If I need a reason to reorient my thoughts and my actions so that I fill myself with the thoughts of the person and work of Jesus and I respond in love, a reason for me to do that is because God has been sovereign in my chaos. So in this story, Mark employs one of his favorite writing techniques. We've seen it several different times throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark. It's unofficially called the Markin sandwich. What he does is he sticks the main action of a story in between two slices of related but different action. So in this instance, in verses 1 through 11, the Markin sandwich looks like this. The bread, if you will, on the front end, it's the religious leaders who are plotting to get Jesus. On the back end, that other slice of bread would be Judas going to those religious leaders, agreeing to betray Jesus for an amount of money. And then the meat still with me? The meat in that sandwich is going to be this woman's act of devotion towards Jesus, and now I'm hungry, okay? So that's our Markin sandwich. Uh, Religious leaders plotting against Jesus, Judas betraying Jesus, the woman worshiping Jesus. It serves as a spotlight on the woman's actions. So here's this uh, scene that happens in the midst of chaos and turmoil and trouble. All around Jesus, people are plotting and scheming against him. But one thing that's abundantly clear to the reader, this is our advantage being outside the scene. One thing that's clear to us is that God is in control the entire time. 
Right? The, the religious leaders scheme against Jesus and God is in control. Judas betrays Jesus and God is in control. Jesus dies on the cross. God is in control. Jesus walks out of the tomb and God is in control. As readers, we have the privilege of remembering the words of Jesus prior to chapter 14. In fact, we could go back to Mark chapter 8 where Jesus tells us exactly what's going to happen because God is sovereign and has orchestrated all of these events. In Mark chapter 8, verse 33, Jesus says, the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and kill Him. Three days later, He will rise. So as the reader, we have that information. We know Jesus is going to the cross. God's orchestrated all of these things. So we're not rattled by the venom that comes from the religious leaders nor by the actions of Judas. We know that God's sovereign over this scene and everything works towards the fulfillment of His good, loving, and perfect will. And the sovereignty on display in Mark chapter 14 is the same sovereignty with which God guides our lives. God has ordered our steps so that every single one of us would see our lives intersect with His story. How do I know that? How can I say that with confidence? I don't know every story. I don't know every name in this room. How can I say with confidence that God has orchestrated your steps so that your life would intersect with His story? How do I know that? I know that because you're hearing this word this morning. This could be a holy, holy moment for some of you today as you see Jesus anew and your heart is awakened to faith and love for Him. Sovereignty is a weird thing for finite people to appreciate. So often, we evaluate God's sovereignty according to our worst moment. So we recall the hard memory, and then we might conclude that God's sovereignty must be flawed. But when we look here in Mark 14, and we remember that the Father's sovereignty led the Son through the scheming of religious heretics, the betrayal of one of his closest allies, all the way to the horrors of the cross, well, then we gain a valuable perspective, especially on our own hardships. You see, we've never been alone. The sovereign God has been with us every step. God has directed us in ways we have seen, in ways we have not seen, all this in the fulfillment of his perfect will in our lives. God's sovereignty does not inoculate us from hard days. It carries us through the hard days. I heard an old preacher say once, and I love this line, in God's garden, even broken trees bear fruit. That's the sovereignty of God at play in our lives as we walk through hardship and difficulty and chaos. When we see God perfectly accomplishing His good and beautiful will in our lives, then we should respond with adoration. That's one reason for you to adore, to cherish, to love Jesus Christ. Here's the second reason for us to adore Jesus. Second, Jesus is of supreme importance. He is preeminent. He is primary There is no one greater. There is no thing in existence of greater value or worth. Jesus is of supreme importance. Isn't it interesting how the people in the story, in the home, at the the meal with Jesus, how they respond to this woman's act of devotion? 
Right? They're incensed at what she's done because it seems to them like such a waste. It's possible that caring for the poor was on their mind, not just because it's a good thing to do, but because caring for the poor was a, a custom during the Passover celebration. It was a part of your holiday season. Who are these rebukers? Who are the people that get mad at the woman uh, who pours this oil on Jesus? We aren't told explicitly in Mark's account, but some simple deductions seem to point to the disciples. In fact, we've seen this very type of behavior from the disciples before. Back in Mark chapter 10, we're told of this time when parents are bringing their children to Jesus for him to touch them, to bless them. You remember what the disciples do in that moment? They lose their minds. And they start shooing these parents and children away. The text tells us they rebuked them. How did Jesus respond in that moment to the disciples? You remember? He rebuked the rebukers. Again, that same thing happens here in chapter 14. Jesus rebukes the rebukers. Now the disciples, uh, their, their frustration seems to come from this seeming waste of expensive perfume, and it reveals really how backwards their priorities are in this moment. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6. He defends the woman. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. Now, the statement from Jesus might come across as a bit surprising, especially considering his strong concern for poor people, for underprivileged people. But Jesus here is not making a comment about the lack of value in poor people. Rather, he's making a comment about the nearness of the cross. He's saying that this unique and lavish act of devotion is perfectly timed because there won't be another opportunity. We're just hours away from his death So now is the moment to cherish him and devote all that you are to him. The disciples miss the moment to cherish Jesus. And they find fault with the only person in the house who sees the moment for what it is. The anonymous woman, she shows us the preeminent place that Jesus takes above all other possible pursuits, even good pursuits. Like caring for the poor is not a bad thing. Anyone who would take this passage and use it to speak against social justice mutilates the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus hates poverty and loves poor people and calls his followers to care for people in all of their hurt and all of their lack. This is true. But also, Jesus does not say caring for poor people is the same as worshiping me. He takes a preeminent place even over the good things that we would commit our lives to. And you commit your life to a lot of good things. You're a hard worker. You pay your bills. You care about your health. You care for your spouse. You take care of your kids. You care for your neighbors. You, you care for the poor. You do all of these very, very good and wonderful things. But in this moment, Jesus grabs you by the face like he grabs his disciples by the face, so to speak, and he says... I am right here. Don't miss me. There's an importance of now in this moment. The time is of vital importance. This is the moment to see Jesus as your preeminent love, your 
your life's pursuit, everything that I will be is found in him. We've heard of the Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. This is carpe Christus, seize the Christ. Now is the moment to worship him, to lavish devotion on him without regard for what other people might say or think. You don't want to miss your moment with Jesus. Our souls must sit with Jesus often. Do you do that? How often do you sit quietly and unrushed with your Bible open and your heart listening? Is your audience with Jesus scheduled into your day, into your week? It's hard to do. We're busy. I'm afraid for many of us, we're just too busy for Jesus. One of my favorite writers and preachers, he died a few years ago, his name's Calvin Miller. Uh, he wrote this about our use of time. I want you to hear Calvin's words. He said, we have to be delivered from our sanctified exhaustion. Exhausted by our frantic externalness, we collapse in bed at night and for what? Does our hurried religiosity cause us to lift up our eyes to our king? Have we looked upon our small performance with spurious pride? Have we sighed over our small prayers and been satisfied? All the while we know deep in our hearts there must be some deeper, more meaningful way to live for Christ. When we sum up our large professions and our little faith, we know we need to confess our spastic obedience to time. But this subnormal Christianity has become so normal, we don't see anything abnormal about it. In fact, we've come to believe that the most sincere Christians are supposed to be shallow neurotics. Yet the church holds only one possibility of relevance. Time itself must be surrendered to the pursuit of the depths of God. God does not wear a watch. His unthinkable glory is learned only in our time-consuming communion with Him. In this moment, Jesus tells us to cherish Him above all else because this is the time and this is what our souls need. Let me give you a third reason to adore Jesus with your life. The third reason is this. Jesus gives grace to sinners. He gives grace to sinners. That's not a newsflash if you spend any time around the Bible. And in fact, I'd encourage you to personalize that. Jesus gives grace to insert your name here. There's another aspect of Jesus' interaction with his disciples that really intrigues me. He rebukes them directly and forcefully. It had to be an awkward moment. Not the only awkward moment of Jesus correcting his disciples for sure, but it still had to be a really intense and awkward moment. But don't miss this. Although it might have been intense and awkward, it's still a moment that is full of grace. Mark is unrelenting in his portrayal of the disciples' failures. Once again in this scene, they show how dense they are. And if I was Jesus at this point, I think I would get up from the table, take my sandal, and begin to beat them for their massive stupidity. How could you again miss this and get this wrong? After all you've heard and all you've seen and all I've told you, here you are still just as thick as you have ever been. But that's... That's not Jesus. That's Cody. That's not Jesus. All the reason for me to be beat with a sandal instead. But there is grace in the correction. 
He doesn't allow them to continue in their error. He yanks them back to the right love, back to the right affection. Spiritual correction is never punishment. It's grace. The book of Proverbs tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The grace of Jesus for sinners is a reason for us to cherish him. Have you ever considered what grace you've been shown? Not just in some generic sense, but I mean, have you really thought, I blew it. And Jesus gave me grace. The Apostle Paul knew what this was like in one of his letters to Timothy. Paul describes what a great sinner he was and what incredible grace he had been shown. And because of the grace he had been shown, Paul lavishes praise on Jesus. I want you to see the passage and I want you to take note, where is the grace that Paul talks about? And then where's his response of praise? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul says to Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm the worst of sinners. I've been shown mercy. Now, praise God. His heart erupts in adoration, in love, as he recalls the grace of Jesus Christ to him. It could be that if our lives lack this love and affection for Jesus, it could be indicative of a lack of understanding of the grace we've been given. It's a quick way to reveal a legalist's heart. We don't come to Jesus out of love for the grace he's shown us. Instead, we come to him to complete some transaction. I've done these things, now you must do these things. That's not gospel. But Jesus gives grace to sinners, and that's a reason for us to praise him. Here's a fourth reason for you to adore Jesus. Not only does he give grace to sinners, Jesus died for sinners. Let's get real specific here. He died for sinners. You can put your own name there where the word sinner is found in the, in the uh, point. So when Jesus rebukes the disciples in verses 6 and 7, he further defends the woman's actions by explaining their larger meaning. Look at what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I love this line. Jesus says, she did what she could. In other words, Jesus is saying she worshiped him with what she had. In this instance, a jar of expensive perfume was used to show true devotion. In a previous story in the Gospel of Mark, a poor widowed woman used two small coins to show true devotion to Jesus. In that story, we're told that the widowed woman gave out of her poverty all she had. She did what she could. These two women are models of generosity and self-sacrificial service. They stand diametrically opposed to the greedy and hypocritical religious leaders who are scheming against Jesus. 
Jesus goes on to explain this woman's actions to the disciples by saying, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So Jesus interprets her actions in light of the cross. He interprets them as an anointing for burial. Jews did not embalm their dead. They anointed bodies with perfume and spices for two reasons. One, as a sign of love for the deceased, and two, to cover the smell of decomposition. It seems unlikely that the woman at this moment was intentionally aware of Christ's pending death. We don't have any example in any of the Gospels that anyone prior to the cross understood fully what was about to happen and what it meant. So it's unlikely in this moment that this woman has secret knowledge or insider knowledge. Rather, in this spontaneous moment, she worships Christ lavishly and with the cross on his mind, he interprets the act in light of that. So I think when our mind is on the cross, our hearts will swell with love for Jesus. In fact, that's how heaven is described to us. Jennifer, just a little bit ago, read to us a passage from Revelation chapter 4. If you were to spend time in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, here's what you would see. The lamb who was slain is worshipped by angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. And every creature in heaven and earth, they all surround the throne and they exalt the name of the one who was slain. They say in Revelation 5, 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus died for me. When I take that in, my response has to be praise, worship, exaltation, a bit of thy kingdom come here and now. If Christ's death for sinners brings the citizens of eternity to unified, loud praise, what should it do to you? If the citizens of glory are consumed with worshiping the crucified Christ, what should we be consumed with? Jesus died for sinners. He died for you. And you should add your voice to that angel choir in adoration of Jesus. I've given you four reasons so far. I've got one more reason for you to adore Jesus. He's sovereign. He's preeminent. He's gracious. He died for us. Final reason is this. The gospel invites us to adore Jesus. The gospel itself, that story of God's love for sinners, the sending of the Son, the Son dies and rises again, and through Him we have eternal life. That gospel story, it's an invitation to adore Jesus. So in verse 9, Jesus puts a monumental stamp on this whole scene. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why? Well, she reminds us that the gospel is not a debate that is won or lost. The gospel is not a logic war. So many of our evangelism strategies involve answering questions in ways that silence the other and give us a, a louder voice. That, but no one ever came to faith in Christ by losing a debate. People come to Jesus when 
they finally see that he is lovelier than anything this world has to offer. They are wooed not merely just through logic. I'm not saying that there should be no logic in the way we talk about the world and and eternity and sin and these matters. Things should be logical and orderly, yes. But with that comes an affection for Christ. Not some mere conclusion from an argument, but an affection, a love for him that sees Christ as more lovely than anything else this world has to offer. The good news, the gospel, is that God loves loves sinners and he's made a way for us to be reconciled to him and to have a relationship with him. That's amazing. The gospel's an invitation to a relationship with Jesus. And that's why we should adore him. So this morning we've highlighted five reasons for us to recover the lost art of adoring Jesus. He's sovereign. He's preeminent. He's gracious. He died for us, and he invites us into a relationship with himself. I don't know about you. I want to be like this woman. I'm not there. I'm preaching on a passage that I need to put into practice in a greater way in my own life. I want to be like this woman, though. I want to love Jesus no matter what other people say. I want to love Jesus no matter what other people think. I want to love Jesus in the face of opposition. I want to love Jesus with all that I have. Don't you want to love Jesus that way? Of course you do. But how about we just start with conquering this next week? So I want to encourage you to put a little a little flesh around this general idea of adoration, rather than just leaving it in the vague, I want to encourage you to treat the adoration of Jesus kind of like a spiritual discipline, like a regular practice, something you would do intentionally, not just sort of fall into. So here's what I would advise you to do. I want to encourage you to think about this. First of all, I want you to schedule one hour this week. One, take one hour, look on your calendar, block it off. And if someone calls and says, hey, let's go get coffee, you say, I love you, we'll have to do it another time. Can't do it at that time. I'm busy. you got an audience with the king. Nothing should trump that. Schedule it. If you don't schedule it, it's not going to happen. Second, when the time comes, get alone and get quiet. Turn off your phone, turn off the screens, turn off noise. I, I would encourage you to, to practice silence. Noise is everywhere in our lives. I think when we get quiet before God, we can hear better. Get alone and get quiet. Uh, That means you're going to have to get away. If you've got kids, you're going to have to find a way to get away from them. Maybe you lock yourself in the bathroom, as is your normal practice. I don't know what you do. But you've got to get alone. You've got to get quiet. You're going to need your Bible. You're going to need a pen, and you're going to need some paper. And then here's a really simple sort of agenda. Pray, read scripture, think about it, write your response, praise God. I don't want to dictate too much of it. It's not like there's some law with this. I just want to give you a practical how to the why that we've considered this morning. Uh, This last month, my wife Melissa and I, we celebrated 20 years of wedded bliss. 20 years for me, eight for her. And... uh, Our relationship with each other, our dating relationship, started before the advent of cell phones and email, Uh, and so we wrote letters, and I've kept a box of those letters, and every now and then, uh, we'll pull them out and look at them, and we'll giggle over them, 
Um, they are the sappiest substance on planet Earth. <laughs> uh, and I was eaten up with her. And puppy love is so sincere and so overinflated. But in the days around our 20th anniversary, I thought a lot about where we've been in these short 20 years. And my time with her has made my adoration of her sweeter and more necessary. And so it is with our Savior. Time with Jesus makes our adoration of Him sweeter and more necessary. It would be easy for us to walk away this morning and feel like this was a pointless sermon and immerse ourselves back into our frantic busyness. But Jesus shows us the better way today. And He calls us to pause, to give Jesus what you have, and to experience a foretaste of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our hearts are wooed by so many suitors. Our affections are fragile and prone to stick with whatever is immediately in front of us. God, I pray that you would give us greater capacity to love you. Give us courage and foresight to fight against the tyranny of the urgent and every other counterfeit love in our lives. Pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that we would love you and we would cultivate that love through time with you. And God, I pray for my friends in here that may not know you as their Savior. Maybe this is the moment, this is the day that you open their eyes to the one who is worth everything worth more than one jar of precious oil. He's worthy of all of it. He's worthy of every crown, worthy of every praise. The one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, awaken their hearts to faith today that they would see how you have loved them, that they in turn would trust and love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.